there, Downtonians. Welcome in. Downtownians? Downtonians. Any of those will work. It's Downtown the Podcast. Episode number 78. Welcome in. Rich Kimball. Kerry Haskell with you from our Zone Radio studios. Here on Broadway in Bangor, Maine, our daily show, Downtown, originates from here. Weekdays, 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Zone Radio stations of Maine. Streaming audio at our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We talk to a lot of writers on the show and here on the podcast as well. And two of the very best with us on this week's edition of the program, Joe Poznanski, very successful and longtime sports writer, branches out from the sports world a bit to talk about legendary magician Harry Houdini, who was carrying many ways more than more than just a magician. He was, you could say, the template for modern celebrity in this country. Yeah, and and self promotion of of said celebrity. Uh, he he's. I mean, he would be right at home in the Instagram generation. Yeah, and and his. Joe points out in his book, he was not the greatest magician, not the greatest illusionist, not the greatest escape artist, but nobody was better at selling themselves than Harry Houdini. And that's proven by the fact that everybody, regardless of age, knows his name today, nearly 100 years after his death. It's an amazing story. And uh, and Joe did a wonderful job telling it. Coming up in the second half of the podcast, an immensely successful writer based here in the state of Maine, Tess Gerritsen's got a brand new ghost story, thriller, murder mystery, all wrapped up in one called The Shape of Night. And we'll talk with her about that a little later. But let's get it underway by welcoming in Joe Poznanski, former National Sports Writer of the Year. You know his work from Sports Illustrated, NBC Sports, The Athletic. His brand new book is called The Life and Afterlife of Harry Houdini. And oh man, I love this book so much. It took me forever to read it because I just wanted to slow down and enjoy it. Uh, it's really a terrific piece of, of history and Americana, and I, I loved every minute of it. Thank you. That, that means a lot to me. This was, this was a pretty big uh, step out from, from where I normally go, and, uh, you know, it, it was something that means the world to me, and, you know, today is launch day, so I'm just taking it all in. It's pretty, it's pretty fun. Well, you have written primarily about sports, but in many ways, as you point out, Harry Houdini was, uh, in some sense, well, he was an athlete, first of all, a very yeah. good athlete, but also about as ruthless as a competitor as you'd ever meet in the sports world. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that he's more, say, Michael Jordan than, than uh, you know, a classic magician. I mean, he, he was someone who absolutely had been, and, and that was the driving force behind his act. I mean, his act was you come with your handcuffs or your boxes or bags or whatever it is that you want to bring and lock me in there and, and I'll get out and I'll always get out and I'll always win. And, and that was, that was his mentality. And, and, uh, and he was a good athlete. You know, he was a runner and a boxer and a swimmer. And, and I do wonder if Houdini was, was today, you know, in, in playing today, living today, if he would have been an athlete, because, you know, that seems to be the, the, the thing that, that, that drove him. Um, but, you know, as, as, it, as it turns out, it was for him, it was it was this idea of escape and this idea of magic. And uh, wow, it's 100 years later and, and we're still talking about the guy. 
Well, yeah, and of course we heard the Jill Solbule song at the beginning. As you point out early in the book, everybody knows him. There have been better magicians, certainly, but no one's talking about most of those people. But 100 years, almost 100 years after his death, there's nobody alive that doesn't know the name, and references to him are constantly being made. They are constant. You know, and we see him in sports, obviously, a lot, right? We see we see pitchers who get out of jams being called Houdini or quarterbacks getting out of sacks that are called Houdini or basketball players who make some particularly, you know, ridiculous pass. Um, but he is everywhere. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned the song. There, there are a stunning number of songs that reference Houdini or about Houdini, television shows, movies. He's everywhere you turn, and, and you're right. It's it's so interesting to me that everybody knows him, you know, and that and that includes if you go into a second grade class and and say Houdini. Even by then, at some point, they've all learned at least a little bit about who this this person was. And you know, it was you know, as the book really I think goes into that was his driving ambition all of his life was to become famous beyond anybody else and to be remembered forever. And, and oh, he did it. I mean, it's, 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 you know, it might be his greatest, uh, his greatest illusion was, was creating this character that, uh, that seems to be, uh, seems to be immortal. Well, along with his, his physical ability, I mean, he was a, just had incredible ability as a, as a promoter, as a self promoter, yeah. and especially a knack for getting press or, getting reporters to tell the story his way, even before he really became famous, where did that ability sort of generate? I, I think it's just sort of a natural kind of bit of genius that he had. He, he had a very modern sense of publicity. I mean, as, even now, people are in awe of, of the way that he was able to get his story out because, you know, obviously this was long before any kind of of mass communication and you know he he was on the very forefront of movies but i mean this was before radio before obviously well before television and and you know he he created this buzz about himself everywhere he went and he worked very hard at it i mean you know to think now that in order to get people to come to your show you would hang upside down in a straitjacket and escape in the middle of town i mean that's a that's a pretty <laughs> pretty heavy price to pay just to sell a few tickets but but that's how he thought and and it you know i think that's where he there there are many many ways that he connects it today but i think people use the houdini methods of of promotion today more than they certainly did in his time and and the idea of the way he he not only uh you know worked with the press but the way he manipulated the press the way he created myths for himself and 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 had them you know appear true and and all of those things that I think we can all recognize in our day-to-day lives now, uh, that was kind of new when he did it. And, and I, you know, he, a lot of people, I think, have followed his path. We're talking with Joe Poznanski here on Downtown. You, like a lot of people, got hooked on Houdini because of the Tony Curtis movie, which seems so beautifully appropriate because almost none of it was factual, and yet it still captured the essence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, in so many ways, it's, it's, it's like there's this character, Houdini, that that is bigger than life, and and you can tell all kinds of Houdini stories that aren't true, but lead to some level of truth. And you know, the the Tony Curtis story was, you know, I saw it, so it, it was a big movie when it came out. I mean, Tony Curtis was a was a young actor. His, his his wife was in it. I mean, it was like a it was like a big 
production at the time in the 50s. And then it had like this this whole renaissance of the 70s. It was on television quite a bit and and a whole bunch of people saw it then. And and that movie, you know, kind of kept him going for about 30 years uh, before other people came and picked it up. And and now, of course, there are all kinds of documentaries and movies and, and miniseries and and you know, it, it seems like every other day there's there's some new some new thing, a play or something that uh, that is about Harry Houdini. Uh, but but that movie had a, a huge impact. I was surprised how many people I talked to in the book who said somehow that movie inspired them to to, to you know start being interested in the guy. Your research is uh, outstanding in this book, and and Houdini is the centerpiece. But there are so many incredible characters that we meet along the way, and I think the one that that I'm most fascinated with is, is Patrick Culleton. Can you talk a little bit about him? Yeah, yeah Patrick is is uh, he's he's an old actor. Uh, he played in, in quite a bit, quite a few TV shows and a couple of movies, um, and and was fascinated by Houdini all of his life. And he, um, you know, he he went through a, a rough patch. You know, he he went to Vietnam and he and he went through a, a rough patch and came back and, and found this second life as a, as a, somebody who, who went around the country and told Houdini's story and did some of Houdini's, uh, you know, illusions and, and created this whole character that he called Houdini's ghost. And, and I was so fascinated by him and fascinated by his story. And, and you know, part of the book is me sort of chasing him a little bit, trying to, mm. trying to find him and get him to talk to me and, and, and so I can understand and and uh, you know, and the book ends, uh, you know, with 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 him, and and it's uh, you know, it's a it's a bittersweet story, and and one that that I you know I I wanted, I, I really was very very moved by him and moved by his story, and I wanted to tell it as as well as I could, and and uh, you know, so he's 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 a, a fascinating character. One of the really interesting aspects of uh, the Houdini file is the film that he was very proud of that not many people of our generation have seen, but you got to see The Grim Game. Yes, yes. There's a whole wonderful story. It's, uh, it's, it's a silent movie that he made that uh, was destroyed, essentially, through uh, for a couple of reasons. You know, most of those old movies were destroyed, but, but his in particular, there was a fire, and, and, and you know, his, all of his movies were lost. And there were only... You know, nobody even knows how many, maybe three remaining copies, and then there were two, and, and then there was one, and nobody knew where it was. And it's a wonderful and fun story how that actually came to, to life and, and, you know, finding the, the, the sole remaining copy and, and, and having it redone and, and remastered and all of that. And then I got to see it, and it is, it's, I think, as close as we'll get to, to seeing what made Houdini special you know i mean it's it's still a funny kind of goofy you know the plot is ridiculous and, <laughs> and you know the music that they found for it is you know it'll play in your head for a few days afterward and all of that but but the escapes and the things that he does in it and you can see it it's all live you know he's doing it i think on first take and and all of that i mean it's it's pretty stunning and you could see like wow there is there is like a charisma about the way he does these things that you could imagine people just being thrilled to go to the theater and to see him do them. 
is the uh, the mirror cuffs that I love that story uh, the way you break it down the people who weigh in on it is that sort of the ultimate Houdini story because it, it captures everything the self promotion and the subterfuge that was such a part of his story yeah I, I, I fell in love with the story and I, to be honest when I started writing the book I was unaware of it entirely and you know it's it's basically the story of, of him in in London. Uh, and the paper, the London Mirror, that's why they're called the Mirror Cuffs, uh, challenged him to escape from these from these perfect handcuffs that were impossible to pick. And there's a whole story that goes along with it, and, and then him refusing and then accepting and, and going on stage and, and it being an hour-long, you know, task and, and all of these things. But the thing that, that really got me interested in it was I was talking to some Houdini people early on, and I said, is there any Houdini escape that we still don't know how he did it? Like, I mean, there, there are a lot of them that the secret is, is you know, only a few people know, and, and, you know, you have to actually really go out there and try to find it. But most of them, if you're really eager to know exactly how Houdini got out of things, there are sources. And it turns out that the mirror cuffs, nobody knows. Like, like if everybody has theories, everybody has opinions, and, and one of those opinions is probably right, but nobody knows for sure how he did it. And I just thought, there's my story right there. There's <laughs> the story that 100-plus years later, we still don't know. This is one secret that he carried with him to the grave that, that, that we'll never know, and I just thought, yeah, that, and, and as you said, it has everything. It's such a wonderful story. It has everything, and it especially speaks to Houdini's charisma, because, as you mentioned, it is an hour-long performance, the vast majority of that behind a tent that, they, exactly that right. people in the audience weren't able to see him working the escape. That's exactly right. I mean, it's, if we thought of it the way it is now, like if we thought of this kind of performance in today's world, it would be, you know, hey, I'm going to get out of these cuffs, and then he'd go back, and then he'd come out with them still on, and then he'd go back, and then he'd come out, and they're still on, and then he'd go back. And this was this happened, you know, multiple times, and then he comes out, and he's free. And, and you know, and people went crazy and carried him on his shoulders, and, and you know, it was it was the, the talk of London for, for, you know, so long. And, and it, it, it speaks to what a different time it was, but I think you're right. It also speaks to working with what he had, his ability to capture the imagination and inspire wonder and, and awe is, is unmatched. I mean, you know, he wasn't, by many accounts, he wasn't a great magician. But by all accounts, he was an incredible performer. He was an incredible person at building, you know, these, these things up into these enormous, uh, enormous achievements. And so uh, I love that story. I, I just love the Mirror Cups, and I spend a lot of time on it. There's a whole section <laughs> on the mirror cuffs with multiple chapters, multiple theories, and, and uh, I, I, I love that part. It was really a lot of fun. How important was his wife in the image that we have of Harry Houdini today? I think the, the singular most important figure in, in you know, post, post-Houdini's death, nobody worked harder or more effectively than than. Best did best Houdini in keeping his name alive, in inspiring you know these new legends about him. I mean, to the point where you know the movie, uh, the Tony Curtis movie that we mentioned, it came out after Best had died, but Best was the one that that uh, that 
you know, got that movie made. I mean, it was it was based on her sort of retelling of his life. And, you know, she she was she was a great showman herself. You know, she was someone who who, you know, she was in his act at different times. Certainly at the beginning, she was a very important part of his act. Um, but she, you know, she loved her myths, too, and loved telling stories. And they were they were one, you know, they were a team when it came to, to those sorts of things. And, and there's no question in my mind that if, if Bess had, in his passing, if Bess had decided to move on and, and, and sort of leave that life behind, that, that, you know, we might know of Harry Houdini, but he would not be the figure that he is today. Uh, you ask yourself the question in the book, do you, do I like Houdini? You say it's complicated. So I ask you this after the research in the book, do you feel like you know Houdini now? Oh, I don't know that you ever fully know him. I mean, you know, I, I think there were parts of himself that he, you know, he was such a public figure. And there's more Houdini memorabilia in the world than just about any, uh, any celebrity or star, uh, maybe in American history, just because he was constantly out there pushing his name, signing anything that would be signed and creating, you know, these, these new fans everywhere he went. And yet there were, there were, you know, he kept secrets and there were things that, 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 you know, it's hard to know. I mean, it's, it's very hard to know what it is that motivated him at the end, you know, particularly at the end after he became famous. So why, why he was never able to let go of sort of this, this fury that he mm. had in him. And, and so, I think there are there are certainly ways I think I understand that. Here's here's what I would say: there are many people today who you know in in all walks of life uh, that whether you know they're celebrities or, or politicians or or athletes or whatever the case may be, where they'll do something and I'll think that's a Houdini thing. That that feels like Houdini, you know. That you feel like that the way that they promoted this or the way that they pushed themselves or the way they kind of created a myth for themselves or whatever the case may be. So I think that in that way, uh, I think about, you know, his personality and, and the way he was wired. And I think I understand that. What's your favorite piece of Houdini memorabilia that you own? Well, I, you know, I, I bought a, a lot, as I mentioned in the book. I bought a lot of Houdini stuff uh, to the point where my daughters, as, uh, as you kindly referenced <laughs> in the beginning, uh, grew a little sick of the whole thing. Um, but I didn't buy anything that is like like I didn't buy anything rare. I didn't I didn't spend you know exorbitant amounts of money. I mean it was mostly posters and and books. Of course, I bought all of the books. And you know I have a first edition of his of the of the first biography of his, uh, which I think you know was was you know written by Harold Kellogg and and it's it's cool and I'm I'm glad to own that. But. Yeah, for me, it's like I just I like the goofy stuff. You know, I got a Houdini beer mug, and I got a Houdini Pez dispenser, and a and a and a Houdini teddy bear, and a Houdini action figure. So I like I like that kind of stuff. I like the cool, weird Houdini stuff that uh, that has been uh, on the market at some point uh, in the last fifty years. The life and afterlife of Harry Houdini out today, available everywhere you get great books. And uh, Joe, I, I loved every minute of it. It's such a wonderful tale, wonderfully researched, and as always, brilliantly written. Thank you so much for being with us, and we wish you much success with the book. Oh, thank you, Rich. I really appreciate it. I love coming on here. That's Joe Poznanski talking about his new book, The Life and Afterlife of Harry Houdini, on Downtown the Podcast.
When we come back after this word from Cross Insurance, novelist Tess Gerritsen's got a new one out, and it's a good book you're going to enjoy a lot called The Shape of Night. You'll hear about it right after this from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. I just moved in my new house today. Moving was hard, but I got squared away. Bell started ringing and changed right loud. I knew I'd moved in a haunted house. <laughs> it's uh, Gene Simmons, the other Gene Simmons, not that one. <laughs> A little dusty disc for you here on Downtown, the podcast, and an appropriate one to talk to our next guest, author Tess Gerritsen, whose uh, new novel, The Shape of Night, takes place at what appears to be a haunted house along the coast of Maine. But not just any ghost haunts the hallways. It's the ghost of an old ship's captain who is, uh, well, let's just say more romantic than your average ghost. Here's our conversation with author Tess Gerritsen. I love the book, but I, I made what turned out to be the mistake of starting to read it alone in my old house, and, and I began to get a little nervous there. The, the tension is palpable in this one. Yeah, when you start hearing creaks and noises in your house, you wonder what's really there. Is it a mouse or could it be a ghost? <laughs> well, it's a, a wonderful story of a, a food writer named Ava who rents an old home in coastal Maine to a finish her book, but also uh, kind of get her life together, and she, she picks an interesting locale to do this. Yeah, uh, all a house called Brody's Watch, which is an old sea captain's house on the coast, um, and it still has, as one of its tenants, the ghost of the old sea captain. Yes, and uh, it turns out that it's not the mice that uh, <laughs> she and her cat track down that are the most disturbing visitor there. Yeah, but this this is a ghost with a twist. This is a ghost who has his attractions, and you know, I was I was um, intrigued, intrigued by the idea of choice between a perfect um, lover who may not be real and a real human being with all its flaws. And which which would we choose? And I I find this parallel um, with people who are actually choosing computer sex over real women. And in a way, that's what this ghost represents: the perfect lover. Well, and what I love about uh, the character of Ava Collette is that she's she's a very flawed heroine, and we sometimes want to yell at her when we know she's making a bad choice. <laughs> yes, but she is like all of us. We all make bad choices, and uh, sometimes we live to regret them. She is trying to heal from something she's done that was uh, that turned out very badly, and that's part of the reason she's fled to Maine. Well, and what's wonderful, too, uh, being being somebody who grew up in Maine, that you really capture the dichotomy of the beauty and the solitude that one finds in these coastal areas, but also the isolation that you can feel as well. Yeah, you know, the isolation is, I mean, that's part of what makes Maine so beautiful. But for an outsider, it's part of what makes Maine seem a little scary and creepy. Although you and I know it's a really safe place to live. (laughs) Um, There's something about being here, uh, you know, in, in the middle of the woods or away from everybody else, and it's dark out, and you hear noises in your house, and you wonder. Well, you sure do, and and 
this book gets even more interesting. It goes along because it turns from a ghost story to a thriller and then eventually a murder mystery as well. Yeah, well, you know, I, I usually, I seem to be unable to get away from murder mystery. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter what the book is, somebody is going to get killed there. I have to mention also uh, the food that you write about in this book is amazing. I, I want to buy the Shape of Night recipe book. Can you make that happen? <laughs> well, you know, a lot of those recipes are very traditional. I, I mentioned, um, and, and I did some research into, you know, how did you make a lobster pie? And how did you make this old sailor's beef stew? And um, it was a lot of fun. Food is a big uh, part of my life because my father was a, he had a restaurant. He was a professional cook. So I grew up with this real deep appreciation of, of how hard it is to put a good meal on the table every single night. Uh, have you ever, uh, this is a very personal question here, but uh, yeah, have you ever, uh, I have thoughts, I guess we'll call them fantasies, about somebody like Captain, uh, Captain Brody there, or did that, uh, did that come purely from the imagination? Well, you know, I, I can't, you know, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> what I can say is is that there's something about a ghost that feels perfect. Um, you know, when you think about a ghost lover, he's going to know what you want. He's going to know how to satisfy you. He is never going to tell your secrets. Um, and you can totally trust him. And then in the morning, you don't have to cook breakfast <laughs> for this guy. So <laughs> in every way, as I was mentioning, you know, men and, and, and computers, um, women, um, there is a perfect lover in that way, but he's not real. And would you trade him for a flawed human being? Is it safe to say that there's something in this ghost lover that uh, makes Ava tap into a side of herself that, that maybe she wasn't aware of? It certainly does. And I think that he, um, when she sees him, when he comes to her, he's actually feeding off her own emotions about what she needs. And she's working off a terrible sense of shame for, for something she did. And um, what the ghost delivers is what she needs at that po moment in her life. And there's also, uh, even in this uh, relationship that has, I guess we could say, some dark turns to it, but there's still very much, and, and this is a theme in many of your books, there's a real sense of empowerment there. Yeah, by the end, I, I think that she, um, she knows what, what she needs. She can take control of her life, and the ghost, uh, in a way, helps her. Um, and I don't think she realizes at the end just what he meant when he said, um, "What under my roof, what you seek is what you will find. And that's exactly what she needed to find. We're talking with Tess Gerritsen about her wonderful new book, The Shape of Night. Uh, you're a longtime uh, resident of coastal Maine. Is there something inherently mysterious about these these old homes and these small towns? Yeah, there is something mysterious. I mean, I, I, that's why I live here. I love small towns. Um, and I love visiting old homes. And when you walk into a house that's been lived in for over 100 years, you know, you, if you're sensitive, maybe you can feel some external some vibrations that are still there from the people who live there and breathe there. So I was trying to capture some of that sense of the soul of old houses. Well, and you do that very well, and, and it had me thinking about my own house, and I, I find, I don't know if I've got a captain watching over me there, but I find for the most part, whatever that is, that energy, that feeling, I, it, there's some comfort to that and a sense of continuity. Yeah, I know. I mean, some people uh, feel their house is haunted, but by a ghost that's very friendly or a ghost that watches over them or protects them. Um, and yeah, I've been collecting ghost stories in Maine. Maine is a very supposedly haunted place. 
because it seems like every little town has at least a couple haunted houses. So uh, I think we're really in touch with our past. That's, that's really what we're haunted by is what happened before. Uh, you have been the, such a prolific writer through the years. Do you, I know, of course, Stephen King owns our station, so we know a little bit about his process, but uh, do you do you write every day? How does it work for you? I, um, I write when I get a story, and sometimes there are, like, gaps of months between stories while I'm waiting for something to, to percolate. But once I get going, I really get going, and uh, in general, I turn in a book about once every year, so that's relatively, you know, good. As long as you are consistent, you can, um, after a couple of decades, you will have a couple dozen books under your belt. Uh, the Rizzoli and Isles books were so successful, and of course, the television series as well. And, and I'm sure you've heard it before, but, but you write in a very cinematic style. Um, maybe that just comes by, you know, just by nature. I don't, I'm not really aware of it. I think that most writers, when they write, they are very visual. They, they are writing what they can imagine seeing. So if it turns out cinematic, maybe that's, that's where it comes from. Well, I, I could certainly picture that crumbling widow's walk and, and what it was like <laughs> up there with the, the, maybe the scariest moment for me. And I, it probably wasn't the scariest for a lot of people, but when, when Ava goes up there and it's just the cat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The cat, the cat plays a very important role in the story. Her, her main coon cat. Um, and let me just reassure uh, anybody who's listening: the cat survives. <laughs> no, no cat spoilers here. But it really is a wonderful book. Uh, the Shape of Knife, the newest from Tess Gerritsen. Loved reading it. It was great for us to have the chance to talk with you. Thanks so much for being with us, and we wish you continued good luck and success. Well, thanks, and good to talk to you too. Tess Gerritsen talking about her new book, The Shape of Night. Here on Downtown, the podcast, our thanks to Tess, as well as Joe Pesnansky and his new book, The Life and Afterlife of Harry Houdini. Thanks to you for joining us as well. For Carrie Haskell, this is Rich Kimball. We'll see you next time here on Downtown, the podcast.